My name is Andrew D'Angelo. I've been doing cannabis for 37 years. I'm best known as a co-founder of Harborside. We're a vertically integrated company in California. We have dispensaries in Oakland, San Jose, Desert Hot Springs, and now San Leandro. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, So I am beyond delighted today to be able to sit down and talk with Andrew D'Angelo at, you know, there's so many ways I could introduce you, activist, you know, co-founder of Harborside. Um, You're involved with the Last Prisoner Project now, which I know you've been um, bringing a lot of attention to. Um, But welcome, Andrew D'Angelo. Thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be with your community today. Yeah, totally. So I'm I'm really stoked to see where our conversation goes. I've been following um, a lot of your press over the past uh, several months, um, some of the interviews you've been doing and keeping up with some of your work. And there's a there are a lot of milestones to go through. But then I know there's a lot you've been talking about lately that I don't want to make you regurgitate the same stuff that you've you know been saying um, over and over again. So I'm going to try to go in some unique directions here. But there's all sorts of stuff uh, for us to um go into right now and one of the to kind of segue into a lot of things one of the first things i wanted to ask you about is you you recently took a trip to barcelona didn't you i did i was there for icbc barcelona and spanibus yes yeah yeah and you um you didn't you make it out to the hashish and um hemp museum that's out there i did i had a great time at the museum that's Ben Dronkers owns and operates that museum. He also has one in Holland, Amsterdam. And Ben's been an old friend of the family for decades. And so it was great to be able to see his newest outpost there in Barcelona. It's a beautiful building. He's done all this wonderful stained glass work. And yeah. And if you if, if if you haven't been to Barcelona, the architecture of Barcelona is just every single building, every single doorway, mm-hmm. window, archway is just extraordinarily well crafted and beautiful, beautiful work. And the the hemp and marijuana museum there is is no exception. And they've Ben and his team have just done a stellar job with that museum. I encourage everyone to to make a pilgrimage to Barcelona yeah. and check it out. Yeah, I saw some of the the photos you posted on social media, and I was I was fascinated how beautiful some of you know the way everything was presented, the design, the architecture, and everything. And um, I I wasn't even really familiar with that museum. Can you describe a little bit about what that museum is like and kind of um, how things are presented and and what your experience there was? Sure, the uh, museum has multiple levels, so it's two or three stories. There's elevators and stairs that you navigate through it and uh, it's part a history lesson of the plant uh-huh. and, and and specifically hemp uh you know the two the two tracks the museum really talks most about is is as is, is cannabis as a medicine and as an intoxicant uh-huh. um and and hemp as a industrial raw material uh, yeah. so so that those are the two focuses i would say of the museum and, and Ben's just got an incredible collection of, of ancient hemp materials and, and modern hemp uh, wares also that are represented by some of the leading can- cannabis and hemp companies of today. Of course, 
uh, Sensi Seeds is right next door uh, oh, to the yeah. okay. Hemp and Marijuana Museum, both in Barcelona and I believe in Amsterdam. And, and, and you can purchase CBD products there and, and, and genetics and a whole bunch of really cool art and culture and swag from both uh, the museum and Sensi Seeds. And I was just thrilled to be in Barcelona and, and experience that. You know, we, we in the United States, we don't we have Cannabition was sort of the first um, cannabis museum <laughs> or installation in Las Vegas there. We Maps just did a big installation yeah. in Los Angeles that was a museum. But we don't have a permanent cannabis museum, you know, that I'm aware of that's that's as large and as serious um, as Ben's. I'm sure we have lots of small ones and, yeah. and and probably millions of small ones in people's homes i certainly have one. <laughs> right, I, yeah. I, I got i got some in my my home and my altar of course um but uh you know so when it, it, it it's not easy to have a museum you know museums mm-hmm. are don't make money they lose money and they are about building culture and about keeping something alive for future generations to to learn about and and that's hard work to do and our movement and our industry is still in the embryonic stages and mm-hmm. i look forward to the day and i hope steve and i get to be a part of it um where there's something like the the hemp museum here in the united states uh, every city should have one um <laughs> every every community has a cannabis story that goes back hundreds of years um and and we can all tell our own version of what's right. happened over the last hundred years so it's part of the cultural work um mm-hmm. that i think we're moving into sort of a cultural renaissance with cannabis we've had you know we had to legalize and that was just a brutal 100 year war you know and now we have all these little battles to get legalization right, which we have not done. Mm-hmm. And, and of yeah. course, you know, we have a lot of work to do to get legalization right. So that's going to be 10,000 battles that we're going to have to fight for <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. But the cultural work is really something that I think our community is going to have a lot more fun with than the political work. And I, 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 I really creativity and culture has is, is been one of the strengths of the cannabis movement and community for forever going yep. back to the jazz age you know yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the brothels of new orleans going back to jamaica going back to mm-hmm. to to india um long long time this plant has inspired the creativity of, of men and women all over the world and 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 so we get to come out of the shadows culturally now and into the light and um where our colors loud and proud uh, and 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 talk about the plant and in ways like a museum there's millions of ways to express cannabis culture but a museum is certainly one of them and and you know that the, there's a big wide open cultural world out there that i hope your listeners will will embrace there's also i know you you do a lot of science on this podcast there's a big science this the world of cannabis science is oh like, gosh yeah just like just like just like culture it's in the yeah. embryonic stages and Gosh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't think of something more exciting right now than to be working with cannabis science or cannabis culture. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's uh, the research going on with cannabis now. It's like we've hit a breaking point, and now there's just tidal waves of information coming out and people interested. And I know things are hard right now. We're in this disruptive period uh, dealing with the coronavirus and everything. But I've 
I've been very blessed in my life to have the chance to work with some universities that, you know, are now, now that hemp is legal, they're like, okay, we can touch the cannabis plant. And even though it's not THC rich cannabis, we're still able to touch the cannabis plant, we're still able to learn a lot and, you know, and do some work that, you know, a lot of these institutions have been wanting to do for a long time. And like I mentioned to you before we started, I'm originally from Mississippi. I went, did my undergrad work at the University of Mississippi and uh, spent some time at the uh, cannabis lab at the University of Mississippi. And so, uh-huh. it's, did you work it's, on the farm or in the lab? I, did, I, I didn't work on the farm. So I worked for the IT department for the university, and I was one of the go-to uh, technologists that worked on instruments and different things like that um, in the lab during the time I was there. So wow. I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time. Just when I when I was there, I spent most of my time in the research and development lab indoors. But I did get tours of the outdoor facilities. I saw how they processed everything. It, it was is fascinating. And talking on what you just mentioned, the different perspectives of our culture around cannabis. That's something that weighs on me heavily. Coming from Mississippi, coming to Oregon, the culture shock of like I have friends. I have friends that are still battling to avoid going to jail over a half gram of cannabis in their cars, whereas now I'm in Oregon where people are driving around with pounds of cannabis in their cars, you know, legally as part of their business. Um, So it is fascinating, and I think it's something that is underappreciated that we have so many perspectives around the cannabis plant and our relationship um, to cannabis laws and cannabis culture. Um, and I, I agree with you that um, work that I look forward to seeing done is promoting these stories and helping people get a more rounded understanding of how uh, society has been interacting with cannabis um, you know, throughout time, but also in different places in the world at the same points of time. Uh, we're in a fascinating place. Um, and your activism work, I think, is it's really great that you get to interact with all of these people that are fighting these different battles and learning their stories and being able to share those with people to kind of open people's eyes a little more that there's more going on here than maybe you see in your just your immediate community yeah well actually jason once steve and i learned that the most powerful way to do cannabis activism is to tell the stories of people who really need cannabis and, and, and whether that be HIV and AIDS patients in the late eighties and early nineties. And, and some of that pioneering work that was done by Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary and, and all of us at that time, or kids with epilepsy more recently, that is how you really, we have to go through the heart. Um, it, 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 we made all these rational arguments for decades of personal freedom and cannabis is a natural plant and you can't criminalize something like this and it has a historical significance to the human race and it's been with us for thousands of years and we went on and on with these rational arguments and they went nowhere. And of course, we didn't mind making the argument because we got to be in front of cameras or <laughs> the two cameras that showed up at the press conference <laughs> in those yeah, days. Time. Yeah. Um, or the one reporter sitting there with a notepad um, or a tape recorder. Uh, but we enjoyed being the voice, but we just weren't that effective. And, and, and once we made other people the voice, 
patients and, 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 and people who need this, regular everyday people that America could relate to. Then we started to make more progress politically. And, and then, you know, mainstream, we started to build uh, a bridge we could stand on to mainstream society's heart. And um, we're still building that bridge. And, um, you know, thankfully, we've made so much progress. Uh, um, you know, you're in Oregon, I'm in California, and, and cannabis is legal for anybody over the age of 21. Uh, and, and what a far cry from folks in Mississippi or even my hometown where I grew up, Washington, D.C. area, um, which has a lot more legalization than Mississippi does, but still doesn't really have access. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yet. Um, so, you know, it's 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 one of the reasons I left was because we could not change it. And and California, we could change it. Uh, so sometimes you have to go to to where you can be most effective and and then sort of allow that to to be a foundation you build on and 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 you know the fact that you and and i uh, another person i know brad crafton i don't know if you know brad crafton but he also went to university of mississippi he also worked on the farm and he's also in the cannabis industry he's a farmer um and um you know, similar story to you. Uh, he he heard the call from folks like me and my brother from other places there in Mississippi. Was working at the University of Mississippi. Was working on at the farm. Saw a disconnect yeah. um, between what was what was legal and not legal, and what was being studied and not studied on uh, at, the, at the farm there um, in University of Mississippi. Um, and and everyone should know that's that that's the only place in 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 the United States where the federal government has a license to grow weed. And they grow. That's where they grow all the federal research weed down there, um, University of Mississippi. So, you know, it's through those stories um, that we move people to to come into the movement and to come into the industry and to come into the culture and to come into the science. And it's going to take millions of us, a village, a tribe of people to to. It, it took a lot, a lot, a village of people to prohibit cannabis. It's going to take a <laughs> yeah. It's going to take a village of people to uh, free cannabis. So, so I'm, I'm that. That's the work. That's that's yeah. the great work we're involved in right now. Yeah, yeah, totally. And one question I I had for you, given that you have a you know your background in acting and and theater and everything, which is fun because uh, myself and my wife were also um, uh, theater uh, geeks as well. Um, one thing I wondered, and I and I asked this because of some experience I've had as well. Does your background in acting assist in your work in activism, given that it um, kind of prepares you to be in front of people, um, to you're already sort of thinking in this sort of narrative storytelling kind of way? Um, are there have you found that there are ways where your acting background has benefited your work in activism? Oh, absolutely. The, the ways are endless. You know, you go to acting school, you go to college, you study acting. That's what happened to me. And the, the acting bug bit me right around the same time the cannabis bug bit me in um, high school. So uh, yeah. I was an athlete in high school. Then I got hurt, and then I started taking cannabis. I felt better. Then, then all the people in the theater department at my high school seemed really fun and cool, and they all smoked weed. So 
Um, I, 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 and it was nice to be on stage and get the attention and tell stories and, 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 and be in that ancient communion that live theater is. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, there was something that, that just spoke to me and it, it made me happy. So I studied that in college and at the time, this was 1985, uh, you have yeah. to understand a much different time. And, 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 and to study acting in those days was insane. Uh, people said, you gotta be out of your mind, do anything. <laughs> uh, the old saying was, if you can do anything else besides be an actor, go do that. Um, uh, that, that was what all your teachers told yeah. you. And that's what all yeah. the acting books and said, uh, luckily I'm, I'm more stubborn than that. Um, so, right. And but I also loved cannabis and, and I was advocating for cannabis even as I was learning to be an actor. And, and, and there came a point where I had to choose between acting and cannabis. I, I was uh -huh. unable to do both. There, there was no way I was going to be able to do both. The world was not going to let me <laughs> do yeah, that. I mean, insane and, demands and so, either way. Insane demands and just, you know, frankly, the, the American theater that I grew up in in that time was very sober um mm. and and there was a lot of stigma um against anyone who mm -hmm. who you know advocated for weed yeah it was very much considered a hard drug and, and right. any actor, i can relate to that yeah you know and <laughs> i'm sure in mississippi <laughs> same thing right so so it was hard to get work yeah. <laughs> as an actor with with that sort of around my neck but but what i did find and it was painful because you know your dream of being the next Jack Nicholson is is something mm -hmm. that you harbor closely in your heart, and you work very very hard. I spent right. years and years dedicating myself to that craft and making a lot of sacrifices to do that. Um, but then um, you know I learned, wow! I started selling weed, and I started being an activist, and and all of a sudden these skills started coming in handy. And you know I found myself more disciplined than most weed dealers <laughs> mm -hmm. because I had this yeah. background in acting, and 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 you know you had to go to rehearsal to be an actor, and you had to mm -hmm. study singing and dance and meditation and relaxation on voice and all these things you had to study and learn and you had to practice <laughs> um yeah. and so it, it instilled the discipline in me that few of my weed dealing uh, peers had <laughs> so that was sort of a competitive advantage i guess you could say um uh that i had from that and and then of course um being a leader leading cannabis activism leading cannabis companies leading teams to get either you know engage in cannabis commerce better and 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 bigger and stronger and faster or to change laws uh both of those things require leaderships uh and leading teams and and people getting everybody sort of row in the same direction and get things done and acting skills and and my study of the humanities as a young man um translated very very well into that i think that 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 perhaps you know the being an actor is the um study of the emotional life of characters and and the emotion mm -hmm. yeah and the emotional life of human beings and and so you develop an emotional intelligence as an actor that 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 the normal person who doesn't study uh, acting perhaps doesn't have. And, and then as a leader, I found, particularly in a cannabis ecosystem that's filled with constraint and contradiction and absurdity and danger, <laughs> um, 
I found that that emotional intelligence was very helpful in terms of being a leader and manager and, and getting people to believe in a vision and, and sacrifice for it because you can't be in this game without making sacrifices. And, and, and when we ask people to do that as leaders, uh, we have to show up in the right way and, and lead by example and do a good job as leaders or you're not going to get a whole lot of cannabis people to follow you for very long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, cannabis yeah, well, people and... have an aversion to lead, you know, leadership. <laughs> Authority. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, yeah, on that, you know, I mean... <laughs> and on that train of thought, you know, what were some of the, um, I guess, kind of growth milestones for you as, you know, starting in the eighties and then working into you know, now in 2020, I'm sure you've gone through a lot of evolution as as an activist and how you communicate and as a leader, how you manage. I remember seeing one quote from you sometime about um, when you're working at Harborside that you learned that um, you realized as a manager that you had to treat everyone more as a family rather than, you know, just an employee, manager, employer kind of relationship. And that was a big you know, sort of turning point for you. So can you kind of go through some of the, that evolution? That sure, I'd love to. I'm uh, very passionate about leadership and management because yeah. I had to do, I had to learn how to do it in the underground environment. And then I had to learn yeah. how to do it in a, in a complex retail environment where the, you know, thousands of <laughs> members of the public were coming every day. So yeah. um, that, those, those are two much different management and leadership ecosystem. So when you're in an underground system that I grew up in, your freedom depends on your team executing the instructions exactly right. And so you tend to lead with a command and control um, sure, yeah. principles of command and control. Do this, do it right, or you will be held accountable in a pretty serious way uh, because you know, you're risking my freedom, you're risking your own freedom, you're risking the freedom of our network, our community, uh, so you have to lead and manage people with a heavy hand. Oftentimes, the folks that you're leading and managing managing in underground economies are folks that perhaps have less education, less formal training, sure. perhaps had more traumatized upbringings. Uh, and so um, you have to manage and lead in such a way that that gets people to execute without everybody getting busted. When you legalize and you have a license to sell cannabis in a retail environment like we did in 2006, it's a much different world. Uh, and you have complexities and constraints involved in that. You have the public coming in involved in that. You, oh, yeah. have, you have a workforce of mainly people in the beginning of their careers um, whether they be bud tenders or inventory managers or safety and security people or bookkeepers, whatever, they tend to be at the early stage of their career uh, and require uh, training and require a type of management that encourages development. Because in those early days, I couldn't just hire anybody I wanted. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you had to be a medical cannabis patient to work at Harborside when we first opened. And you had to be willing and able to work in a weed shop. Um, <laughs> yeah. And most, and there were a lot of people that just 
the reputational risk or they had a better job in a mainstream industry or, you know, it was too risky um, yeah. um, to, to go work at a dispensary. So the labor pool that we had to pull from was very constrained. And I had to develop people and develop their yeah. talent and develop their skills. And that required more of my skills as an actor and as, as, as a theater person, uh, mm -hmm. because in the theater, um, we're dealing with things you can't touch a yes. human emotion. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we're, 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 the commerce is a story <laughs> or a song or, you know, a poem. It's, it's not something you touch and train. Uh, so, so the, that's where the skills really helped me, right? Where, where I'm, I'm banging my head against the wall, doing this command and control thing, like two it's months. It's just not working. Yeah, I mean, like two <laughs> or three months into Harborside, we're starting to grow. The people are starting to come in. The patients love our model. And I've got, you know, people that are quite a bit younger than me, working mm -hmm. under me, and they're in the beginning of their career, and they're fantastic people. They're all cannabis yeah. people. They're patients. They're fantastic people. And they're smarter than me <laughs> in a lot of ways. They, they know how to do technology and they know how to do mm -hmm. um, social media, which was basically just being born at that yeah. time, but they were way ahead of it. Um, they understood how to gather information better than I did. So I quickly learned that the, what I had to do was treat everybody like they we were doing a play together rather mm -hmm. than rather than we were doing underground weed together and it yeah. took me it took me a couple months to make that adjustment um uh, because i would go home and the command and control would just fail and and they wouldn't do it <laughs> i mean they would yeah. just they just would not do it and then i would have to do it and then i'd be yep, at work yeah. at you know i'd be at work at five in the morning and then i'd stay in there until midnight and it was yeah. Oh, I'm just tired and just, uh, I felt ineffective. I'd go home to him, just sad. I'm like, something's not working. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and eventually, you know, I realized it was me, not them. And I had to look within myself and I had to discover new ways of being a leader and being a manager. And once I had that rev revelation, and by the way, I got that revelation by consuming a lot of cannabis in a distressed state of, of being where I'm just trying to find the answer. And so I'm coming home, I'm taking my cannabis and I'm being a good <laughs> cannabis person and I'm meditating on this. Yeah. And once I realized, Hey, I got to get my ego out of the way here. Um, and mm. I have to lead in a different mm. way. And the next day I'll never forget it. The next day I, 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 I my main right hand person at that point, uh, time was a, a woman by the name of Adrian. And I sat down with Adrian. And I said, look, I'm sorry if I haven't told you this before, but we're a team and I'm going to treat you with respect and you're going to come in here and together we're going to do all these things we have to do because I'm figuring it out as we go too. I've never run a retail yeah. shop and, you know, we got to figure out how to manage this inventory and keep track of it. Um, because at that at that moment in time, that was the big job I had to, to mm -hmm. face. Um, and and once I did that and I had that frank and honest conversation, it was more like two actors talking about how are we going to do this scene mm -hmm. together um, or two artists trying to figure out a creative problem together. 
then things started to connect and very quickly um, we started to get a lot more done and very quickly my assignments started to get <laughs> executed <laughs> and and, yes, and, yes. and and we built trust together and 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 then Adrian was able to come into work feeling better about her job uh, knowing that I trusted her to do it um, I would let her do it yeah sometimes she'd make mistakes sure um, and but I I had to let her make a mistake and then yeah. And then say, "Hey, look, let's review this work." And and I think there's some mistakes here. So um, once you know that all dawned on me, then then I was off to the races, and I became very curious about this. And I started reading all the management mm -hmm. books and all the leadership books, and then I started taking classes at the University of California Berkeley Extension Night School program, and mm -hmm. um, I became somewhat obsessed. Obsession is something Steve and I have always sort of cultivated. And I became obsessed with how do you lead people uh, yeah. in, a, in a complex, constrained environment where the whole world's against you? Uh, how do you do it? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that immersion into study was also very helpful because I would learn something in a book or a class and I'd bring it into work and I'd try it. I'd try yep. it. Yeah, learn. Yeah, and if it would mm -hmm. work, I keep doing it. And if it didn't work, well, you know, I, I, I try to figure out why it didn't work and make some adjustments. And, and that's, that's what a, a, a truly good leader does uh, all the time, every day, uh, where we should constantly be in that conversation with, with ourselves as leaders. We're always developing as leaders. Mm -hmm. Leadership is a journey. It's not a destination. Anyone who thinks that, you know, <laughs> leadership is a destination is not really a leader. Um, because yeah. it, it, you, you learn over time that you learn over time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and myself as a, as you know, so there's a scientist hat that I wear, but I'm also an educator. And it reminds me of this dynamic that always happens in education where, you know, you're a student for X amount of time, then you become a teacher, you're thrust into the world. And in your mind, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm even teaching people <laughs> because I'm still learning so much myself. And you have to, you learn what this dynamic is about. It's more about the dynamic, the interpersonal dynamic than it is almost anything else. And figuring out that it is like, even as a teacher, you're on a journey with your learners to, you know, navigate waters and uh, discover things, explore things. And you're always learning things as a teacher. And if you ever think, as an educator that you already know what you need to know and that you're just you know by your own grace bestowing this you know upon other people well you're in bad shape um that's a recipe for um for disaster yeah um, you're so you're so right yeah and as some things you mentioned um triggered some other things that i wanted to make sure to talk to you about one of those is stigma so this concept of stigma you've you've touched on several times now ways that you've experienced stigma along your journey. You mentioned that in acting school, there was that stigma there against cannabis that you couldn't really, you know, be very open about cannabis for fear of how you, you know. Um, well, even worse, I was, I was open about it and I was somewhat blacklisted because of it. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. Yeah. That yeah. Even so worse. Actually, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then you, you mentioned uh, going into Harborside dealing with, stigma around 
dispensaries, whether that be from people that might want to visit a dispensary and don't know, you know, what to expect or people that are working there. So can you talk a little bit about other ways that you've encountered stigma, maybe in um, sometimes some not so obvious ways? Because I think stigma surrounds the industry in ways that um, are very subtle, especially now as legalization is coming about and culture is changing. We're in this weird um, mosaic sort of uh, where we've got a lot of people that have changed their minds about cannabis or are very friendly to it, people that are on the fence, and then you still have people that are very averse. But it's a much more a sort of mixed pool now, I think, than it ever has been of people. I mean, it's one reason why I have this podcast and the book that I have curious about cannabis. So many people are curious and, and trying to figure out how they feel. Um, so can you, yeah, speak to that a little bit about some of your experiences with stigma and maybe um, things that you've, that you've learned over time to deal with that experience. The, you know, there's sometimes that sense of dread when you feel that stigma there. I mean, even as a scientist, I feel that of like, you know, me getting involved with cannabis, is that like putting a mark on my record somehow? You know, how are my colleagues going to interpret that? Um so there's so many directions we can go in, but that's a topic I wanted to make sure to talk to you about. Well, I'm glad you did because not too many people ask me about that. And stigma is our next big war that yes. we're going to have to yeah. fight. I mean, legalization was the first big war. And Lord knows we have plenty <laughs> more places that we have to liberate and legalize. But the wind is at our backs with respect to legalization with respect to stigma not so much yeah um i i while i share your positive outlook in terms of more and more people becoming can curious about cannabis more and more people are opening their hearts and minds to a different story yeah. um about cannabis so i think that work is 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 we've started to do that work but the stigma is terrible. I mean, here we are in California, the state that was the first state to legalize medical. We didn't obviously didn't become the first to legalize adult, but we did in 2016 legalize adult. And because of stigma, 60% of California is banned. You can't. Yeah, that's mind blowing. Yeah. 60% of California is banned uh, because of stigma. Uh, because the local, when you ask people, do you want a cannabis dispensary in your neighborhood? You have this nimbyism response mm -hmm. uh, that's absolutely baffling. Absolutely baffling. In, in the county that voted 70% for Prop 64, which was the legalization for adults, mm -hmm. that county has banned dispensaries. <laughs> um, wow. It's just... Wow. It's it's the most phenomenal perversity of democracy in a case like that that I've ever seen. Seventy percent of the people voted for it, and they've banned it. Uh, so at the local level, with a few political elites um, uh, that have made those decisions against the will of the voters, and you know, we've tried to fix it for two years, uh, and. We haven't been able to, again, because of the stigma. Uh, then that's just the political stigma, right? Right. If you get into the cultural stigma, you know, I used to have 
to answer the question, you know, I started selling weed in 1983, and by you know 1993, <laughs> I was a wholesaler of weed, <laughs> yeah. um, and I was selling huge amounts of weed underground, and I would go interact with the theater world or the film world or the academic world or mainstream society and people I would meet, they'd come up to me and say, oh, hi, you're Andrew D'Angelo. What do you do for a living? Yeah. And just that question was traumatic for me to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, it, and, and, and it wasn't, and it was not just the stigma that society had on cannabis. It was, it was the stigma I was placing on myself even. Um, yeah. um, and I remember growing up in the eighties and nineties and, you know, if something went wrong in your life, you would say, Oh God, maybe it's cause all the weed I smoke. And, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe it's, you know, and all these lies and all this BS that was planted into your head about cannabis would start to rear its ugly head. You know, it, 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 it's almost like, Oh, it, it, it's just this terrible demon, uh, mm -hmm. um, that you have to exercise uh from the you know I totally from, agree yeah from inside you and and it took me a long time not until we opened harborside and even after even after i remember the woman i i'm in love with right now that i've been with for 12 years when i first started dating her 12 13 years ago we had just opened harborside you know a year yeah. prior and i had to go meet her parents <laughs> i had to go meet the parents yep I'm the guy with the dispensary. <laughs> so what do you do for a living? So what do you do for a living, yeah. right? Yeah. And and um and and so and that was after we had Harborside, we were legal and I had a license. It was still, you know, I remember talking to Samantha, well, how do I answer that question? Um, do you think uh I should be totally honest? She's like, Yeah, I think you should be totally honest. And I'm like, okay. Um How's that gonna go? <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and and I was honest. And they were very nice. Um, actually, um, um, her her stepfather and her mother were very 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 supportive and and nice um, and and kind and and they very conservative people. So it, it, or somewhat conservative. I, I can't say they yeah. were very conservative, but somewhat conservative. And 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 I was grateful that you know, we were able to get over that. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I was very actually, you know, in the subsequent years, both both of Sam's um, parents used cannabis for their own health and wellness. Um, so, you know, we got to know each other um, over time. Uh, but that's, that's, a, a, you know, and, 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 and if you think about stigma in all the different ways, you know, I, 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 you think about a place like Mississippi where, where you grew up and just, wow, you know, where people really, really believe uh, that cannabis causes insanity and, 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 and murderous behavior in people and all. Well, and it'll, things. it'll send you to hell. I mean, that's, you know, another right? big um, piece there. Right. You know, um, uh, and, and, um, so, so the, the, the stigma and, and, you know, there's, there's actually a long tradition of, 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 of the Catholic and, and Christian mm -hmm. church churches, yep. um, um, I'm sort of marginalizing cannabis people. 
um, uh, for using our sacrament um, uh, over the years, <laughs> particularly in, in Mexico and Latin America. Yeah, um, um, absolutely. Uh, so there's a, there's a history there. Uh, so, and the way, how do we deal with it? Okay, great. We've talked about it. It, it persists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it does. So how do you deal with it? Um, um, and, and one, you have to get validation from people in your immediate circle and community, right? And, yeah, that's and just a great like, point. Just yeah. like we're doing right now, we're two cannabis people, and we're yeah. we're talking about cannabis. We're communicating with our own community, um, and we're validating each other's sacrifices that we're making right now um, to be in communion with this plant. Right now is is is, is a hard. It's still somewhat risky. There's so much stigma. Yeah. It's still somewhat risky. So, so that's one way we 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 create our own validation circles and 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 stories. Um, the other the other way is we have to manage ourselves um you know uh i it, it, i was lucky enough that the acting training instilled in me a practice that i do every single day um that allows me to manage my physical and mental health uh in a way that that it allows me to be a little bit detached uh, emotionally mm -hmm. and spiritually um from and, and and it's only really been in the last f few years that i've been able to practice meditation at, at, at a place at a point where I'm, I'm, I'm able to experience this detachment um, um, where where and and for a long time I was very judgmental on myself because I was I, I wanted to I was striving to to get so much done and, and when I didn't get it done or I failed I would be very judgmental on myself and 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 that would that would also happen with stigma um, um, where I'd feel guilty, um, or some, of, I would internalize some of that external stigma and meditation and, and, um, uh, helps me a lot with that internal work. Um, so we have to have the external validation and then we have to do our internal work and, 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 and you know, ultimately this is a hard path to follow and yep. you have to enjoy the journey. If you, if you don't love this journey, you will experience depression and burnout and sadness um and 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 you may feel marginalized and and excluded uh, mm -hmm. from from society and 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 then that stigma can really be harmful yeah. uh, so so it's hard you know it really is it's hard. very yeah um, it's very and, very hard and there's moments of maybe i you know i'm now 52 years old i've been doing this work for a long time and i i i've i have a community around me now that, that yeah. we, <laughs> uh it's it's kind of strange if if you're not into cannabis in in, in my world <laughs> right but, yeah but but you know, it's taken me a long time to develop that. And many people that are, you know, earlier in their careers and their journeys as leaders may have moments where they just feel terrible uh, mm -hmm. because of this stigma. And the only thing I can say in, in those dark times is, is, is take deep breaths and, and understand that what's happening to you in that moment is a part of you. There's a part of you that is gotten bigger and has overtaken mm -hmm. you and that part of you um has listened to a lie and yeah. and and in, in fact is lying to you right now uh, our minds play these tricks on ourselves when when we say oh god i'm a failure nobody's a failure 
okay um um but we're so hard on ourselves you know and and the stigma uh, 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 the, the the most insidious part of the stigma is what it causes us to do to ourselves and yes. and, and and you see this with other forms of stigma whether it be racism or yeah. or, or homophobia or um, it all kind of works in the, the operating system of stigma and hatred yeah. is 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 very similar to each other um, right. um and you know people what ends up happening is our very bodies through slavery or or imprisonment or even death and lynching um, um become victim um to this stigma to this lie to this this craziness uh and 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 so that's why we have to uh, take care of ourselves and, and surround ourselves with a community of people and then work like hell to change it um so that our future generations our kids and grandkids don't have to yeah. experience this torment uh, yeah. that that we do. Yeah, I mean it's it's intergenerational trauma for sure, and um, I think you you just explained um, perfectly. Uh, you're you're mirroring my experience so well um, as far as you know when I moved to Oregon from Mississippi. So I I had all sorts of trauma from growing up in Mississippi and being involved in cannabis and everything. I so I I injured my back. Um, when I was a teenager, and um, I realized after going through drug trials and everything, I realized that cannabis was something that was probably going to be a part of my life forever because of how it was able to help me function and and that sort of thing. But I came to that realization in the middle of Mississippi, um, where you know there's obviously no access, and your whole life will get ruined if you're you're caught with it and everything. So that it starts to generate all these different patterns of thinking of like, oh, I can't let anybody know. I've got to hide this part, you know, of my life away. Um, and so even when I moved to Oregon and I had, that was before Oregon had legalized. So I had a medical card and I knew, I was like, I can use cannabis legally. There's no risk anymore for me just using cannabis in my home, you know, but still, I would still, my heart would start racing. Like, you know, I might uh, use cannabis and then I'd sit there and think about what if someone comes to the door, you know, yeah. or what if someone smells it? What, what, all these what ifs that I would normally go through in Mississippi. And I sit there and, and it was, uh, you know, to the point where I was having panic attacks about, you know, these sort of issues. And it, it took years and years and years for that feeling to slowly come down and to feel more and more comfortable. But it is still something to this day. I've been in Oregon for seven years and I still have, you know, it's a much quieter voice or feeling in my body now than it than it has been, um, but it is still there. It's still whispering those those bits, uh, you know, of feedback that you were fed in your upbringing, these cultural messages and everything that we, whether conscious or not, that we integrate into ourselves. And so, when things happen, that's what we draw from these these different pieces of programming. That it's our it's it becomes our life's work to reprogram <laughs> it's and, unfortunately um, true what you've said yeah it's so true i mean when i get out of the california bubble and i have to go to a place like texas yeah um, yeah oh my god i'm hiding in bathrooms i've got towels <laughs> right. on the door yeah. I'm, to tag. I'm you know I, I i i'm worried i'm gonna get busted and lord knows 
headlines all over the place. Oh, right, yeah. You know, <laughs> cannabis leader gets busted with cannabis. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then gosh only knows what they do to me, you know. Um, <laughs> so, and all that goes through my mind today when I go to yeah. a place like Texas or, or, or oh, I, 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 I haven't been to Mississippi, man. I, I I'm not brave. I don't blame enough. you. <laughs> I'm not brave enough to go there yet. Um, but if I was invited to go, I would definitely go. Um, um, and and we'd have to go through all those those yep. those those traumas all over again because we're not going to stop taking cannabis. Right. Um, and 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 you know so. Wow, it's so hard, isn't it? it it's one of the when I hear the stories like that. You know, when you find yourself locked in your own bathroom in your own home, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? In your own weed. home, <laughs> right? And yeah, in your own home, right? Um, <laughs> that, that's when you know things are are are, are weird, um, and uh, y- <laughs> you know, it's 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 um, and it's just terrible, and and it does. It takes a lifetime uh, to yeah. deprogram that. The good news is it can be done. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. when you and when you get back on when you get to the other side of that um, yeah. and, and you, you can laugh at it and, mm-hmm. and 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 realize its absurdity um, and, right. and what a powerful hold it has on us all. Um, and, 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 and and so you get that detachment I was talking about, a, yeah. you know, a minute ago um, um, at the end of the day, you know, visionary plants like cannabis teach us to lighten up, man. You know, yeah. um, we all work really, really hard. We try. Sometimes things go well. Sometimes yep. they don't. Um, right now we're dealing with a pandemic, you yep. know, and clearly we're not prepared for it. <laughs> Um, clearly um, clearly yeah. not prepared for it right and should have been prepared for it um yeah. and so so um but we have to deal with that in an honest way and 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 we can't all go jump off a bridge um right um we have to say okay we effed up let's fix it um and yeah. and um and so that's that's sort of the place I'm, I'm, I'm at with it now where, where you can just kind of laugh at the absurdity of, of all those things that, that the stigma did um, to us and, and work really hard to eradicate it from our culture and our society. Yeah. And, and that's going to take a multiple generation. Yeah, it will. Yeah. Uh, it really will. Um, but gosh, won't it be wonderful whenever that time is yeah. Multiple generations from now where, you know, the world of cannabis is just like, you know, the world of apples and oranges. Right. You know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a big moment for me of getting past my own stigma was taking a leap of faith and essentially, a, you know, sort of coming out to my family saying that, like, <clears throat> this is a thing that's part of my life that I know, you know probably have problems with but we need to talk it through because it's not going anywhere and you know we need to come to some solidarity how, on that. How, how old were you when you did that uh i was probably 20 or 21 i think okay, i was 21 okay. 20 okay um and um because it was right after um that whole incident i was saying where i went through those drug trials for my back and everything and yeah came to that conclusion and mm-hmm. so then my next step was like well i need to talk to my parents about this and and I'd been using cannabis for a long time before that um 
but I never, you know, made these connections that it was benefiting my wellness in such a substantial way, you know, that I needed to really take it seriously. And that was a really hard thing to do. And it was a painful thing to do. Um, my parents and I didn't talk a lot for a couple of years after that. Wow. Um, it was it was really hard. Um, you know, a lot of tears were shed. Um, and my parents just, you know, at that time. So also my dad is a Southern Baptist preacher. So let's throw that, you know, into the okay. mix too. So there's a lot of a lot of dynamics there of trying to figure out how to wrestle with this news. Um and so it took a while, but where I'm at with my relationship with my parents now is so immensely better than it's ever been. And they now use cannabis products for different things that they have issues with. And we've made it to that other side, at least within our own relationship with each other. And that gives me a lot of hope for what can happen. Um, and sometimes what it takes for people's minds to change is for someone they love to then, you know, be affected by something that they've held this you know, stigma about for so long. And then they're kind of forced to decide, like, do you want to hold on to that, you know, that negativity? Or do you, you open your mind a little bit and step into the unknown and see what happens? And well, um, I'm well, I mean, your story is the same as mine. Um, and the same as my girlfriend, Samantha's story with, I just told him a minute ago. And there's a reason they're the same story. Um, you know, the fact that your dad is is a, a, a preacher in the community definitely complicated things. It must have been very, you must have been really nervous right before that conversation, yeah. I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. because me oh, yeah. and my brother had, we had to have that conversation with our yeah. dad at one point, you know, many, 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 many years ago. Um, yeah, uh, and yeah. so I know exactly what that's like. And, and yeah, you go through this this period of just pain and just everyone's mm -hmm. angry and hurt and feels betrayed, right? There's like a yeah. real feeling of and betrayal and confusion, yeah. right? I mean, I, I, I remember there both uh, my, my dad would felt betrayed and, and we felt betrayed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and gosh, it was just such a hard time to get through that couple of years after the conversation. And it was, you know, after that conversation in our family, my brother, my father did not speak for a number of years and I had to work really hard to yeah. build that bridge, you know, as, as sort of the younger son and brother. Um, and, and we were able to do yeah. it just like your, your story by, you know, by the end of my parents' life, everybody, you know, my parents gave us the loan that we needed for Harborside, you know. Oh, wow. I didn't um, know that. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, well, we sold my mom's house, moved her out mm -hmm. with us. We were taking care of my mom by that point. And, and, and so she invested that. And then my wow. dad, my dad actually helped us because we ran out of a little, we, we needed <laughs> yeah. a little more. And my dad um, um, helped us too. And we paid those loans back with a nice interest for yeah. them. And, um, and that's how we started Harborside. So, you know, these family stories, there's a full circle effect that occurs, mm -hmm. right? And, and so for, for people that are dealing with this right now, and you're at that beginning stage, that hard and painful stage, mm -hmm. it does get better. Um, because yeah. the, 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 the cannabis prohibition and stigma is built on a lie. Yeah. And anything that's built on a lie just can't live in the hearts and minds of people in a long and sustained way. It just mm -hmm. can't, especially when it's presented with evidence like 
a hurt back or yeah. a child with epilepsy or um, somebody's dying from HIV. Uh, what are, really? And so when and it, and it presents, it, it, it contradicts the lie. Uh, and mm -hmm. it contradicts the lie, not uh, on an emotional level, on an emotional mm -hmm. level. And that's, and, yep. and, and when you start to do that at the emotional level, that's really where people make decisions. People don't make rational decisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, um, <laughs> that's, people make emotional decisions. So, so that story, um, that those family stories, cause it's really, it's, really? it's the first act of activism is yes. is, yeah. is 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 coming out of the closet to your family and friends and bosses and co-workers and that's the first act of activism that's when you've decided to be an activist uh and often that that first step is the hardest because yeah. um you are exposing yourself to the vulnerability of your own family and community and their judgment of you um yeah. and so it's a very vulnerable emotionally vulnerable thing to do uh and and anyone who does it is brave and and, and it's an act of activism and 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 it's the first act of activism i remember you yeah. know i steve is my older brother and so i was raised to be to do this i was raised yeah, to right. uh, yeah. go go raise hell go, and legalize weed but but even i remember when i went to college i i, I wore a shirt with a weed leaf on it in 1985 and it, you know, it was a big deal to do that. And I, I was trying to send a message to other people that might be we people to to come say hi. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> You've got a friend uh, in me. Uh, you know, um, uh, but uh, and I didn't realize because Steve was my older brother and I was, you know, I was mm -hmm. sort of determined to do this anyway. I didn't realize what kind of reaction that was going to have in 1985 in Orange County, yeah. California. Um, um, and, and so, uh, uh, you know, it was almost like coming out to, to my parents, the way that the teachers and the administrators, <laughs> right, yeah. oh my God, they, they marched me into one office after another. I eventually went back to the dorm room, changed my shirt. Cause it was just not that, you know, it was the second or third day of school. And I, you know, I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want right, to, is it worth it anymore? <laughs> I didn't want to get, kicked, <laughs> I didn't want to get kicked out before I even started. Um, yeah. um, but, uh, and I was selling weed in the dorms too. So it was, it was, <laughs> uh, we were, ne you know, we were, we were on the razor's edge a little bit, but, um, um, uh, but you know, the, the that's that, it, it, that's early activism. You take those risks and it's, it's, it's a little bit dangerous um, because mm -hmm. it's it's not so much that you'll get busted. It's, it's that you'll get rejected by your own family and community. And that's almost worse than getting busted. Yeah. 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 I mean, that that sort of like exile and something I appreciate that you say a lot in um, a lot of your interviews and presentations and things is you bring attention to the concept of cultivating community. And even in our conversation today, you've talked about, you know, how to deal with stigma, you know, develop that community around yourself, you know, as well as taking care of your internal self. But that's that's something that I really appreciate that you're consistent about in your message is that one of the things that helps with so many things related to the issues that we're trying to deal with, cultivating community, trying to, you know, and expand that community, whether it's, you know, within your family, your friends. And when people, you know, take that leap of faith of their, you know, first moment of activism, it doesn't always go well. It's not always, not everybody 
has a, a positive outcome with that like we did. And so then it becomes figuring out that mission of cultivating that community, trying to find, mm -hmm. you know, those people that can can support you and 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 help. And and this segues into, you know, one of the uh, other things I wanted to talk about before we sign off here, which is the Last Prisoner Project. So this relates to stigma. It relates to community. It relates to everything um, that we've been talking about in various ways. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that as far as um, what the Last Prisoner Project is trying to do? It's something that I am very um, excited about coming from Mississippi. Like I said, I have friends that have been busted. I, you know... I, I fortunately have not been to jail. Um, that's just luck. That's the only reason. Um, but I have plenty of friends that have. Um, and so can you speak a little bit, not just to what the Last Prisoner Project is trying to do, um, but why, why it's so important and why um, people that maybe are not so pro-cannabis should take notice of this and, and think critically about what you're trying to do? Well, there's nothing I like talking about more than the Last Prisoner Project. It's a big passion project of ours right now. I'm putting a lot of my time and energy into it. And the simple why of it is cannabis is becoming legal all over the world. Mm -hmm. And people are making millions and billions of dollars of market share is being created right now. Um, yeah. And all that market share is being created by people growing and selling and transporting weed uh, yep. one way or another. Uh, they might be making it into a fancy vape pen, but at the end of the day, they're growing yep. and growing. selling weed and manufacturing. Uh, so, and it's the same, and there's 40,000 people in prisons who did the same thing. Yeah. And they're in prison. They're not in boardrooms. They're not in fancy offices. They're not publicly traded. They're right. effed. They're effed. They're bankrupt. They're, they're, their loved ones are, are, are growing up and, and, and dying without them there. Um, their children are, 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 don't have their parent. Um, their, their community is, is, is without them. Their freedom has been taken away. Their, their lives have been totally destroyed. Going and, to and, and the the stigma and you know the trauma as well that they're they've now had to live with you know all this time. Oh yeah, the trauma of going to prison and then being in prison during a pandemic. Right. Um, right. Um, yes. When you're not supposed to be there in there in the first place, and then you're in there <laughs> and you're watching the TV, and there's a dispensary that's opening right down the street from the prison. Um, and, and they're declared an essential service. And they're declared a sense of service and they're publicly <laughs> traded and the CEO just made $500,000 yeah. last year. So um, that would drive you and me and anybody in prison absolutely insane, depressed, sad, suicidal. Um, yes. and, yeah, and Steve and I have been wanting to do something like a nonprofit for, for prisoners for a long time. When we opened Harborside, we had a program where people could write letters to prisoners, cannabis prisoners, and we'd give you a free gram of weed in exchange for writing a letter. And, and the last prisoner project probably had some Genesis from, from that early program, you know, 13 years ago that we launched. Uh, but you know, about a year ago, I, 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 I stopped running the day-to-day -day of Harborside, and, and I had more time to, to devote to 
another type of activism. And, and so Last Prisoner Project is a nonprofit organization we launched about a year ago where we, we have an executive director named Sarah Gersten and a, a managing director named Mary Bailey, fantastic people. We have a website called lastprisonerproject.org. Uh, you can reach Mary at lastprisonerproject.org or Sarah at that URL and you know we we were looking for people in the industry to partner with us to raise money and we have several programs that you can learn about on our website to do that um, and our mission is to get people out uh, to expunge records once they are out and then to reintegrate them into society with housing and a, and training and a job in the legal cannabis industry so we we yeah. partnered with a multi-state operator called harvest and um we are going to be training prisoners who are released and mm. placing them in the cannabis industry uh so all three of those programs uh, clemency is enormously expensive and hard to do expungement is not as hard as clemency but still difficult and and certainly getting people trained and employed and 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 housed uh is is not cheap either so so we're we've got a, a lot of work ahead of us and and many millions of dollars that we need to raise to to achieve those three things yeah. and it it may take you know a generation or two um yeah, uh, yeah. to to get it all done because we want to do this globally not just in america or north america we'd like to do this work globally and and you know we're close we've already collaborated with uh, some of these early releases um with other social justice groups so there's many social justice groups now social justice thankfully is um an issue that's sort of um becoming um popular uh, as yeah. issues go <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I'm glad um, it needs to be it should have long overdue um, yeah. and um, and and so that that's what last prisoner project is and and that's that's why I mean the 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 we have to restore justice and and we have to get, yeah and we have to get people out of prison and and you know, I don't think it's right for any of us to be in this industry without doing something um, to to solve this social justice uh, inequality and 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 problem that we're having. Now, and it's not just people in prison. It's 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 making yeah. sure that we have a social equity program that works. Um, we don't have that yet. Um, like I mentioned earlier, both legalization and how social ex ec equity works within legalization is not quite designed very well yet. Um, it's very yeah. clumsy and it's not working so good and, and we have a lot to fix there. Um, and, and so there's... Yeah, and, and that's when you're describing it, I mean, that's kind of how I see the Last Prisoner Project is this big social equity project um, because, I mean, let's face it, we're in a weird situation now where legal cannabis is getting majorly whitewashed because you've got people of color that are disproportionately affected by the cannabis laws in the first place. So you see who's in jail and you've taken essentially large uh, populations of people of color and taking them out of the game completely while you've um, now got states legalizing and all of these companies starting to get involved. And a lot of them are not super diverse. 
Um, and this is an issue that I'll be talking on in another interview very soon with somebody about specifically just about that problem. But this is related. The problem with the the prison issue, social equity, all of these things are interrelated. And if we don't address them with urgency, then the industry is going to develop on the current path that it's on now, um, which, I mean, to put it diplomatically, is not ideal, um, you know, if we were to see it run its course. So... I view this as something very urgent for people to pay attention to, notice, and understand these dynamics that are at play. That this isn't, it is about getting people out of prison that shouldn't be there, but it's also about reestablishing the social equity piece um, that these, these people should, I mean, they have a right to. Well, here's the thing about social equity that I think is the key. And, and this is a controversial thing to say, but... Uh, we can't just give social equity lip service. Um, yeah. The way yeah. social equity is going to succeed is these companies are going to be diverse and we're going to have a whole bunch of companies owned and operated by people of color that are going to have market share and be successful. Mm-hmm. And those of us that um, have white skin and have grown up with privilege have to be willing to sacrifice for that. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. where yeah. it's harder. It's, it's easy for people to say, I'm all for giving these folks licenses. It's harder for um, us to say, I'm willing to give up some of my market share mm-hmm. for social equity. And um, yeah. that is, that's, where, that's the place we need to get to. Um, be, and, and until we get to that place, we're going to struggle with this diversity issue and this social equity issue because that's the only way it can be done and what happens is and we saw this in academia we saw this with affirmative action in academia okay is Mm -hmm. is uh, uh, people sue and they litigate against it um and if you if you start giving exclusivity or preferential quote unquote preferential treatment to people of color um to try to make up the wrongs and I remember in the 70s and 80s, this, there was lawsuit after lawsuit and Supreme Court and went all the way in this mm-hmm. big culture war over affirmative action. Um, and ultimately, you know, the court struck, struck it all down. Um, and, and, uh, and, and until white people are willing to make that sacrifice and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do with a little less so this community can do with a little more until we're willing to do that. It's going to be hard, I think. Um, and, and that's what I encourage us all to do. That's how we make social equity work. And, and, and otherwise, um, we're, we're setting ourselves up for something very contentious within our own community. And, and, and that's not what we want. Um, we, we, there's plenty of room for all of us. Um, everything, everything you see around you right now should be made out of hemp and is going to be made out of hemp, (laughs) um, or, or flax or plants of some kind or another, what you Mm -hmm. put in your car, what you, how you heat your home, all these things is going to be driven by plants or, or, or the sun or the wind, um, natural things. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just, it's, it's time to get with the program. Yeah, and I think that's a big life lesson that extends well beyond cannabis, that we have to um, learn how to 
see the bigger picture and be willing to sacrifice a little so that we can all um, get along better in this life in general. Um, and it's hard. We've got egos at play and everything else. And, you know, it's something we all struggle with. But it's, yeah, it's something that we've got to take seriously um, in cannabis and, and beyond. Um, it's something that's becoming a bigger and bigger reality, you know, just with the pandemic and things that we're seeing, uh, people that are struggling and how we're going to, you know, tackle some of these issues, food supply issues, you know, helping people that are less fortunate than ourselves, people that don't have work, you know, all these different things. Like we've got to start thinking about, um, you know, what can I do without so that others can, you know, have something. Um, it's, it's an important thing for us to kind of, yeah, I think learn, I, learn and accept. cannabis people have a chance to lead because uh, here, because uh -huh. I think one of the things many of us who have a deep relationship with the plant have learned is that happiness is not something that happens by accumulation of things. Yeah. Um, happiness is something that happens um, with the, 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 the the people you have around you, um, the meaning you have in your life, the work you do, um, um, and how all that aligns with with your values. Um, so yeah. um, that's you know whoever has the the most friends at the end wins. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> you know if you want to put it in a win loss competitive sort of analogy, right. and that I think that's what cannabis has taught me. Um, um, and I don't need six houses. I need one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't need yeah. 10 cars. I need one. Um, yeah. I, um, and, uh, and I think that we can recalibrate in such a way that, that, you know, it's a little more equal because yeah. that, that otherwise it, it's just, it's not sustainable the way things are right now. Look what's happening all around us. It's just clearly not sustainable. And it, and, 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 you know, human cooperation has created a, a tremendous, um, tremendous progress and, and economy and wealth yeah. and, 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 and science. And just it's, it, it's all because of human cooperation. Look at any city skyline. It's because of human, right. it's human cooperation. And so human cooperation is how we're going to solve all of these problems that, that seem intractable. It's just the compacts we've used to cooperate, like capitalism, aren't working anymore, and we need new ones. And um, yeah. and 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 you know we can't keep growing and growing and growing. We're gonna grow <laughs> to extinction. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. And it just at some point we have to say, okay, um, a post-growth world is needed here. Um, <laughs> and um, and wow, it's gonna be really fun. Because, you know, we don't have to worry about growth anymore. We can worry about, instead of worrying about going, you know, wide, we can worry about going deep, you know, and, yep. and, yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 you know, and wow, creativity and art and music and these things have an opportunity to have a real renaissance. Um, yes. um, yeah. um, you, you know, if, if there really is enough wealth in the world to make everybody middle class, if we just figure out the compacts we need to cooperate to do that, 
shouldn't we do that? I mean, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, like, is that even a, a app? Like, do we really have to think about? I mean, it? shouldn't yeah. we do that? <laughs> I mean, shouldn't we do that? Um, if there's a way to do that sustainably, I mean, mm-hmm. there might not be. You know, I mean, we might right. we might say, wow, you know, we we need three billion people, not eight. Um, right. And so let's figure out a way to trend that to to that. You know, and and yeah. we have to start thinking of humanity as a global family. And, yeah, yeah, and, exactly. and and stop with all this other uh, these other models that 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 may be more nationalistic or, or more tribal yeah. or, or i mean you know i mean even the cannabis community we're a big tribe i mean it, it's it's, yeah. it's it's we could be our own country um if right. there was some yeah. way to to define that without landmass and borders um uh, and mm-hmm. and strong central governments is spiritually we are our own sort of tribe and country and community my brother talks a lot about this in cannabis renaissance and the cannabis creed and and you can follow my brother and i and learn more about this but but this this idea you know this 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 is is you know we are tens of millions hundreds of millions of us now that love this plant that, that have the basically the same value system um, and there's tremendous power in that that we have not even begun to leverage. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And it'll be interesting, you know, as um, people get more creative and especially, you know, when times get tough, sometimes that drives some really interesting innovation. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how the cannabis industry adapts to the times we're in now and how it um, progresses forward because we're at a really interesting opportunity. Um, it seems like um, right now that that we can grasp if we can find a way to get our wits about us and and see the vision. I think you know what you're pointing out of needing that higher vision of what are we going towards, and not just our little group, but as you know society in, in its totality. What are we moving towards, and and how do we get there? And yeah, we just haven't had that um, leadership. I don't think from from very many people that have that level of vision that's trying to coordinate, you know, something like that. I agree. It's we're still extremely nationalistic and and tribalistic, and um, it seems like m- maybe more and more people are starting to clue into those dynamics. Um, but I, you know, we still have a long way to go. Um, and my hope is that when when times get tough like this and it provides an opportunity to do things differently and set new standards and to lead, like you're saying, the cannabis industry has this chance to lead and set examples for other industries and other other ways of doing things. Like, you know, we need to take that seriously and, and recognize those opportunities and grab hold. Yeah, we're at a real crossroads. I wrote about this and I was grateful that Benzinga uh, published my, my piece about Prop 64 and how to fix it here in California. And, and you know... What's happening in California is 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 metaphorical for what's happening with legal cannabis in Canada yeah, and Michigan yeah. and, mm-hmm. and and Massachusetts and lots of places. Um, we you're you're absolutely right. We're at a crossroads uh, here, and um, we have uh, you know there's there's the, the legal industry is really on the verge of collapse in a, in a pretty yeah. serious way, um, and and um, and, 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 you know, we also have to get our own house in order. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I talk about is here in California, 
if we just raised somewhere between 25 and 50 million dollars, we could write our own law. We could write our own regulations. We could write our own taxes. We could take the local control away from the people. We could do it all. We could win. Um, it's a pay-to-play political system out here, and in most places in the United States, we didn't build that system, us cannabis people, but we have to learn how to win within it, and we can, uh, mm -hmm. because now, you know, our industry, however fledgling, <laughs> however constrained by bad public policy, we still did $3 billion in yeah. California in 2019, and we only need, like... <laughs> One tenth of one percent of that to right. to pay to play in the political system and win. So um, that that we do have to get our own political house in order, um, uh, and and certainly diversity and and social equity is part of uh, that uh, getting that house in order. And that's why we have last prisoner project. You know, we're yeah 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 the it it it's we're fighting. We used to have to fight a war to legalize cannabis. That and and usually when you do war metaphors, you talk about all the battles. Yeah, you know, I lost the battle, but I won the war. You know, the old right. saying. Um, well, now we've won the war, but we're losing the battles. Yeah, um, yeah. I yeah. mean, we're losing the battles. Um, and you know, and and that's where we need to start winning. And 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 we have to pivot. I I spent two years in California doing this with. The California Cannabis Industry Association. I, I'm now a private citizen, so I'm trying to do this a little bit more from the outside than the inside. But but you, once you've changed law, you're now no longer a political activist. You're a political operative, and right. you have to get into that system, and you have to create the change you need to make legalization work better for everybody. You have to do that within the system, uh, and. That's a whole nother skill set where we're, I'm still just learning how to navigate all of that. I learned a lot in the last two years and, and I talk about that in that article. And, um, uh, but our primary, you know, we can't get too angry and frustrated with the politicians for getting things wrong when we don't have our own house in order. Um, and, and so we're very fragmented right now. Um, if you Google trade associations for cannabis in California, you'll come up. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be 150 of them. Uh, we need one, one really good one really good. and big one that represents everybody that has a 10 or $20 million annual budget just for California yeah. or 50 yeah. or under million even. Um, exactly. Then we start to win. That's what the that's what the NRA and, and the conservative groups, they don't have 150 NRAs. Okay, they don't have 150 different trade groups. For, they, they, no, man, they, 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 yep. they get behind one. They get behind one, they consolidate, and boom, they, they hit you hard right in the face. Um, and, yep. and politics is competitive and contentious. That's the way the yep. system's set up. Um, and that's hard for us cannabis people. We don't like that. Um, uh, but, and I think we can, like you said, create a new political order as as a new industry order. There's no reason politics should be as contentious as it is. It should be collaborative. Um, it should be collaborative, and 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 disagreements are supposed to get us to a better solution, not right. not not tear us to pieces. It's supposed to be like, oh, okay, now I have to compromise. Oh, wow, that thing in the middle ended up being better than the thing way out there to the right or way out there to the left. Anyway, 
Um, <laughs> and when you, you, you know, uh, and it's not, it, it's so, so it's a different thing we're doing now with, with fixing all of this um, because we're, we have to win all these little battles now that we've won the war. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, um, so, so, and last prisoner project is one of those battles and getting people out of prison is one of those battles. Um, um, and, you know, making sure we don't, uh, overtax cannabis so that we can, uh, absorb the legacy market, not launch prohibition 2.0 against it, you know? Um, um, and, 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 and there's any number of other things we need to do to, to reform, legalization so that we can create a more inclusive ecosystem uh um and you know the high tide will lift all boats uh and right now the 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 politicians and the regulators who who deal with the details of implementing this are scared of cannabis uh they're just terrified of it uh and they're afraid someone's going to get sick or some kid's going to hurt themselves or someone's going to get in a car accident or you know, whatever it is, um, uh, they're just terrified of it and they don't realize how good it is. And, 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 and all the good stories don't penetrate their minds as, as, as much as the fearful ones that haven't even happened yet. <laughs> that, are right, yeah. that are hypotheticals and the real, the good ones actually have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, um, and, and, and so we have, that's, that's why this goes back to the stigma, right? Um, um, and yeah, and yep. and and starts us back in the beginning of this conversation, which is doing the cultural work and 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 telling our stories to make sure, and and creating those communities around us to validate us, um, and because those communities get bigger and bigger and bigger, and everybody within those communities decides to come out of the closet to their parents like you did and yeah. to their communities, and they take that first step of activism. Uh, and then they go through that process of everyone, the shock and awe of that, um, of that realization in their uh, community. And then, and then they build, um, um, and then they transform that community from, from being against cannabis to being for cannabis and oftentimes taking cannabis themselves because the architecture of prohibition is built on a lie. And, and, and once we can connect people with the stories um, of the plant helping people uh, and 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 some of those people end up being people they know and love. Yep. Boom. We've we've created change and transformation. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's very well said. Well, to uh, begin wrapping up our conversation, I'm so glad you were able to kind of tie a bow on so much of that. Going back to the beginning, I wanted to throw in there. Um, going back to the beginning, if we can just get to the point where we've got our museums in every state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really, but I mean, you know, seriously. Really, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in our last few minutes here, well, one, I wanted to, I know I've run over. I want to be conscious on your time. Are you still good for mm -hmm. uh, yeah. a few minutes here? Yeah, I am. Cool. I've got a few kind of like, um, fun questions for me that I wanted to throw out that aren't quite as heavy as some of the other stuff that we've talked about. Just things I wanted to pick your brain about. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about is you casually, and you might've been joking. I don't even know, but you casually made a comment. I think it was on your... Uh, talk that you did for Green Flower Media, or you talked about um, running a dispensary. But at one point in that talk, you mentioned something about um, Jack Herrera dollars or like a, a a currency. And you mentioned, you said, my brother and I are going to work on 
on on this of of trying to get a a, a unique currency or something going like that. Uh, were you serious about that? Uh, well, I want to get Jack Harris face on currency. I think I, yeah. I, um, gosh, I, I, I'm not actively working on a campaign to get Jack Harris face on the <laughs> yeah. $1 bill. Um, um, we're going to have to take that up at a later point. When, <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and, but, um, but there are a lot of groups doing, you know, digital currencies for cannabis. That's, that's what I thought about. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. um, my brother and I are not actively working on one. We've certainly had a lot of conversations with people about that. And um, I am probably the last of the analog generations. And even mm -hmm. understanding digital currency is been a challenge for me to to yeah. just understand how it works um and how it draws its value how it draws its yeah. value you know and like okay i'm gonna go pay my mortgage can i use <laughs> can i use bitcoin to do that um no i can't right uh, oh i well uh, how about groceries no how about cell phone bill no how about okay <laughs> well, <why? laughs> then what do i do <laughs> you know well you yeah. can buy I'm stuff illegal stuff off the dark web with it. All right, well, okay. that's something. Right. You can hold on to it, and someday you might be able to pay your rent with it. Well, okay, yeah, all right. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, um, and it's probably just a function of where I I stand on the generational curves of of things. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think that there should be. Um, uh, I worry about the fragmentation. You know, how many digital cannabis currencies right. can there be and will any of them have mm -hmm. any value if there's 50 of them or 500 of them and if 500 of them all have 1200 members you know, right uh, right you know, exactly yeah. how does it all work um um but i i love the idea of of yeah. digital currency the decentralization of it um mm -hmm. and yeah I, and and this this idea that we're hundreds of millions of a tribe strong across the globe and how do we unite that how do we unite that mm -hmm. with political and even financial and economic power uh, a digital currency might be one way to do that um uh so i'm i'm very curious about ways in which our global community can get connected so that we can leverage that community for political mm -hmm. and economic power i think it's time for us to have yeah political and economic power. I think we've earned that uh, um, now and deserve it. We, we deserve a seat at that table. And, um, uh, but, uh, but I, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and so we're, we're still uh, trying to figure, figure that out because we're, we, but I, there's a lot of power. We have so much political and economic power that we're not realizing that, that in some ways we're wasting um, yes. Yeah. And, I agree. and uh, you know, it's just tremendous um, when you think about uh, when you think about how divided the world is. Well, geez, we're pretty strong um, mm -hmm. in terms of our unity around this plant. That the unity around this plant is very, very strong. As 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 unifying principles are getting weaker yeah. and weaker. As you know, just a general principle right now. Um, yeah. uh, but cannabis might be a unifying principle um, that's that that can work. Um, uh, so, so that's some of the more philosophical and spiritual 
um, things I was probably talking about right there with the Jack Herrer. You know, Jack Herrer was a man that was possessed with divine madness. And, and, oh, yeah. and yeah. you know, in the 70s and 80s and 60s, and then to, to work with this plant with that war going on against it, you had to be, you had to be a little crazy um, um, yeah. to, to make the kind of sacrifices that Jack and my brother and myself and a whole bunch of other people made. Um, you had to have that divine madness pulsing through you and 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 you know our 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 founding fathers that are on those dollar bills Mm -hmm. today sort of were possessed with that divine madness as well you know and that's what i was gonna say yeah it's entirely appropriate that jack get on that that one dollar bill man come on Well, I was about to say, yeah, you've got to have that divine madness to do really great things. I think sometimes, so yeah, that's uh, a coin. Least, uh, that's a yeah, term my brother coined. Divine, divine nice. madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being willing to kind of jump into the fire. <laughs> um. So another uh kind of uh one-off question I have for you, um, about your relationship with Dennis Perone. So that's somebody that. You know, growing up, I've studied, had a lot of respect for, unfortunately, you know, never had the chance to meet or anything. But uh, one thing I want to ask you is just what's your favorite memory with him? Oh, wow. Well, when I was when I graduated college in 1989, I decided I, I went to college in Southern California and I, I just had enough of it at that point. I decided to come to the Bay Area. I was lucky. I was I was studying acting up in the Bay Area at a, at a conservatory. And I didn't know anyone in the Bay Area, and I was 21. I just graduated, and my older brother and Dennis were old friends. And, and he said, well, I know you can stay at Dennis's house because <laughs> you're young and male. Um, and, you know, his house at that time was a, a, a mecca for young gay men, and there were about 30 of them living there um, at that time. He had this big giant. He still still is mm-hmm. his, his husband john still has the house um and it's a it's a it's a fa- it's sacred ground that house and and that house should be a museum yeah. actually someday i hope it will yeah be. yeah um, um but yeah multiple um, reasons but yeah people yeah right now it's still being used as an activist and house and a living house so um um but you know um that journey is is ongoing but uh, i'd like to see that someday um uh yeah. and you know, I was 21 and Dennis took me in uh, and uh, I, 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 I was straight sexually and, and, and that was interesting. And he, it, the, my favorite memory when he first met me and, and he was smoking a joint, he handed me a joint and he looked at me and he said, well, Andrew, your brother tells me you're straight. He had kind of this New York accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's okay if you're straight, Andrew, uh, in this house. It's okay if you're straight. As long as you don't flaunt it, uh, and um, and I would always blush uh, when he said yeah, that yeah. because you know it was I was 21, I was surrounded by all these gay men and they were all looking at me, um, and 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 I would blush and 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 they would all laugh and laugh and howl and mm-hmm. and, and and make fun of the straight straight boy in the house, um, and 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 we had a good time with that and uh, uh, that dynamic, uh, and I I got to be in Dennis's house for. Oh, I don't know, five or six weeks until I found uh, uh, my own place, and and um, and and Dennis was a real mentor to people. He was a father figure. There, there in those days, a lot of gay men were kicked out of their homes, grew up in places yeah, like yeah. in the South and 
and yeah. and were ostracized and were disowned by their own families and they didn't have anywhere to go and and they were homeless and Dennis took them in and and fed them and the rule in Dennis's house that I loved uh, was that you there's only one rule um, you could do whatever you wanted in Dennis's house but there was and, but if you wanted to sleep there and not pay money you had to follow one rule and that was you had to be there for dinner and he he insisted he insisted that that everybody have dinner together um and that we broke bread together and 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 every wow and he'd make a big meal there's big buffet kind of style meal rainbow rainbow family kind of style meal yeah um um every night at dennis's house and and that was the rule and he insisted and he would get and he would remember if you weren't there and he would bust your I mean, he would get really mad, um, um, and he'd call you out. He, you know, like he'd call you out the next day, and say, "Well, Andrew couldn't make it to dinner last night. I guess we'll let him. I guess we'll let him stay here, even though he's straight. Um, but he's not flaunting it, so it's okay. But make sure you're here tomorrow night." And so he would, you know, he would shame you a little bit that way, and you know, you bet your darn ass you'd be there the following night uh, because you didn't want to let. Dennis down because he was your leader yeah. and he was a provider. He was a real provider and he was a man of love. And, um, and I'll just never forget that. I, 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 that was an act of kindness. And not only did he let me stay in his house, he fronted me weed. He got me started mm -hmm. in the, the weed business up there. And, 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 and that's how I got through acting school, you know, was, was selling weed that I got from Dennis. And eventually I was able to sell him weed too and, and, and help with that. Um, but, you know, he, he, I was just one of uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people that Dennis mentored and nurtured and inspired. And, and you know, he gets a statue. Jack, Jack gets to be yeah, on yeah. the dollar bill. Uh, uh, Dennis should get, yeah. Dennis should get a monument somewhere. He should have a monument. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like to see yeah. Dennis have a monument. He's got a mural right now down in the Castro, but I'd like to see him have a. Oh, cool. I like to see him have a monument. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember. Um, so you know, when I was growing up and studying cannabis activism, and learned about Dennis Perone and his relationship with Harvey Milk, and you know, all of that separate activism, I remember thinking by the time I sort of like kind of learned what I could about the story of activism through the 80s and 90s and the connections between um you know the the cannabis activism communities and the lgbtq plus communities and all of that coming together i remember thinking like man harvey milk got a movie but like dennis perone geez like you see how all these worlds interconnect and how he's been at the center of so much of that um because like he he deserves his own movie too um of everything everything that i've seen um like i said just everything that i've heard about him from anyone that's that's known him has been very warm and and positive um so that's that's very cool that you got to to spend that time with him um as you were you know trying to to make it out here it's very very cool so one last question i have for you so you know we talk about cannabis and and that's really great I know you have other passions, though. So one thing I like to ask a lot of my guests are, uh, what are a few other things that you're especially passionate about other than cannabis that maybe uh, folks might not necessarily know about? Um, like, for instance, I know just from following your social media that you're into um, 
you've been doing some gardening and working outside and things. Um, so just in general, yeah, what is what is Andrew D'Angelo passionate about besides cannabis? Well, I have a lot of different things I'm passionate about just on the lifestyle level. Gardening, mm -hmm. as you as you mentioned, is one of them. Right now, I'm encouraging people to plant healing gardens so that you can yeah, grow food, yeah. food, and even cannabis if you're legally able to. Um, uh, so that you know, as food shortage shortages happen, you know, we can be a little bit more self reliant. Uh, so that's one thing I'm passionate about. I'm not very good at gardening, <laughs> um, uh, but I, 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 that's okay. I love doing it. It makes me feel really good. It's part of that internal work. Um, um, it, being in the garden and outside is 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 very. There's something healing about it. So, um, I also like to cook. I'm, I'm, my mom taught us about cooking. So I love to cook food and, and, and when you can grow food and then cook it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really great. So, um, that's, and of course I love going to the theater uh, still and experiencing plays. Um, uh, hopefully we'll all get to do that again, uh, uh soon. Um, I'm passionate about the Grateful Dead <laughs> um, yeah, nice. and, yeah. uh, uh, and, you know, all the various offshoots therein and, and that whole culture is, is something I grew up in and, 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 you know, the, the Grateful Dead tours were where the counterculture sort of was one of the grounding forces of the counterculture, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, kind of kept 80s. it alive. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I haven't done as much pure travel for pleasures I would like to in my life because the cannabis mission has just been so demanding, but I would like to do, uh, more of that. And I'm passionate about going to places I haven't been before meeting people I haven't met before everywhere on earth, there's cannabis and cannabis people. And oh. I love going to, uh, I got to go to Mexico with Steve last year, right around um you know halloween and and the day of the dead celebrations and uh and i got to meet all these great cannabis growers and hash makers and and activists and it was just such a eye-opening experience to be able to meet other cannabis tribe members in other countries speaking other languages but yeah. having so much in common with them so that's probably the thing I'm most passionate about right now. We mentioned Spain a minute ago. Um, uh, I went over there uh, to to experience some of that uh, passionate uh, pursuit of international cannabis people and cannabis scenes. Um, and you know, I just got a little taste of it before the pandemic hit. But you know, these associations, these nonprofit associations that that, that are happening in Spain are really exciting they're great community centers the weed and the hash is top notch in there uh, and they're very social places people are in there working people are in there drinking mm -hmm. coffee and tea mm -hmm. and um they're a little bit different than a dispensary per se yeah. um, um but um but has aspects that are similar to a dispensary and and i i was really fun to be in another country so far away to experience that level of cannabis freedom and and commerce uh, mm -hmm. and culture 
Uh, so I think that's the thing I'm most uh, passionate about now. If we can't do, we're, we're learning how to do that virtually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that um, we may have to learn how to do that virtually more and more um, in the coming months and year or two. Uh, but it's, 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 it's a really tremendous thing to be able to meet um, um, cannabis people from all over the world. And we, we have different backgrounds, different religions, different cultures. We mm -hmm. eat different kinds of food, uh, but we have very similar values and spiritual orientations around cannabis. So mm -hmm. I, I've been fascinated by that because, um, you know, I, I, for a long time, we didn't know if, if our message was going to spread as wide as it has. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I first experienced that phenomenon going to Amsterdam back in the 90s and just experiencing that cannabis freedom yeah. in Amsterdam what and the coffee shops. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, what could be possible. And, and, and now, you know, the, the, the associations in Spain are, are, are doing it. And I, I, I think that we'll get to see a lot, an explosion of that kind of activity globally in the, in the coming years and decades. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to, you know, it's again, part of connecting that whole tribe together now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we'll, we'll be able to visit each other's consumption lounges and dispensaries and, <laughs> yeah. and, and farms and they'll all be legal and out in the open and we'll be able to share information and knowledge and, um, and, and then we'll be able to share our customs and our food and, and, and our religions and our things yes, that, yeah. that, that, that made us special to the place we were from. Uh, I, I, discovering all of those, you know, it's a little bit awkward being in Spain and not knowing the language. It makes me feel bad, but at the, but I also, yeah. um, enjoy the poetry and the, the, the mm -hmm. beauty of the, the sound of, of, of Spanish being spoken in Spain. Um, it sounds different than the Spanish being spoken yeah, in Mexico, yeah. for instance, uh, that I'm more used to. Um, and, and, and it's fun to be exposed to these different things. It's, 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 it's part of, of learning how diverse humanity is and, and, and gaining respect for, for that. And, and, and so I think that's the thing I'm most passionate about right now is, 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 is connecting with the international cannabis community. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm hoping I'm I'm able to, I guess once things settle down and get to whatever the new normal is, um, be able to to get out. I mean, there's there's great research that's come out of Spain. I've always wanted to uh, check out that area. Yeah, I'm, I'm connected. Israel to too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Israel's huge, and yeah, I'm connected to a group that a nonprofit research group that is uh, basically like Slovenia, um, Austria you know, several of those countries that have kind of come together and are trying to share information and get um, uh, funded research going and everything. So I have a lot of motivation to try to, to get out and, and explore. I look forward to when the opportunity comes because, there's yeah, there's so much to learn. One of my favorite interviews I've done is with a guy that travels around um, Asia collecting land-race cannabis seeds. And mm. in the process, he gets to you know, meet with uh, people from all sorts of different cultures that are all connected around cannabis. And he said something very similar to something you said, that no matter where he goes, there's always a, com a cannabis community that he can connect to. And even if he doesn't know the language and he's totally disconnected from their customs and everything, 
you can still connect with one another um, over the plant. And that's just been, it's an incredible thing for me to watch him do this work that he's, you know, traveling to Pakistan and all over India and Thailand and Laos, all these places. What a great and, job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And doing it at a lot of risk too, I might yeah. add, you know, but um, that experience sure. of connecting with these other cultures and communities, it goes back around once again to what we were talking about at the beginning of recognizing that when it comes to our experience with cannabis, there are people all over the world with different experiences that we can learn from and, and, uh, and we can all grow together by seeing these different perspectives and, and getting connected. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's really great. Yeah. The magic of the plant, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a magical, magical plant and it speaks to us and we hear it and, you know, it, that, that, that's, what we share uh it, and that's what's so magic i mean it's just a plant right but but right, it can yeah. transcend it can transcend so much of the boundaries human beings put up between themselves yeah uh and what could be more important than transcending those boundaries right now i know so, yeah really so and my brother talks a lot about that also um uh in his talks uh um but it's 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 it never ceases to amaze me that the magic of the plant and the intelligence of the plant. Um, you yeah. Know, it, 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 every day I learn something new about cannabis. Yeah, from, likewise, from, yeah. From cannabis, yeah. Yep, yep. And that's one of the great things of being able to talk to people like yourself on this podcast and everything, having these conversations. There's never a conversation I have where I don't learn something new or gain some additional perspective, um, and it's it's exciting. Um, and, you know, at this point, we can start wrapping things up. I want to make sure, you know, we've mentioned a lot of the different things that you're involved in between Harborside, which right now you're an advisor to Harborside. Is that right? So you're still involved with That's uh, right. I'm an advisor. some of the operations advisor. there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you've got the Last Prisoner Project and other things going on. So at this point, I'm just going to kind of give you the platform and please – let listeners know any and everything you want them to know as far as projects you're working on, where they can learn more, whatever you want to get out into the world, even philosophical musings, whatever you feel is important, you have the platform. Well, thank you. Uh, we've covered so much territory. I will say that, you know, I have a website, andrewdangelo.com. You can keep up with some of my um, thought leadership there. You can also inquire to work with me or collaborate with me. Um, I, I advise and consult all over the industry. Uh, I do some of that work pro bono, particularly for social equity folks and, and, and others. Um, and so I guess I, I, I should let folks know that I'm available to do that now. I don't run the day-to-day -day of Harborside, and, and, but I am an advisor to Harborside and a contractor with them, big shareholder, of course, and, yeah. and just, um, you know, still trying to make Harborside a, a great company, more greater than it was the day before. Um, is, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, it's our legacy, so it's something I, I care a lot about and still work on quite a bit. Um, and I have, you know, I, I have some creative projects, some storytelling projects. Oh, nice. uh, it's a little premature to talk about them right now, but um, hopefully people keep an eye out for 
uh, some things with my name on it. And on that level, um, things are a little bit on pause in terms of right. uh, film and television production. But um, uh, I hope to get some of those going uh, because, I, I like I mentioned in the beginning, the cultural, I've, I've done a lot of can, cannabis commerce in my life, and, and I love doing cannabis commerce. There's just nothing... There's no greater feeling than selling somebody some weed. There, there really isn't. There's that. It's not a commercial exchange for me. It's a cultural human exchange, um, and it it thrills me to this day. It, it it did the very first time I did it when I was yeah. 15. It thrills me today. But the culture work is what's speaking to me more and more um, because and telling the stories uh, and m making it about uh, i want to rebrand cannabis and pop culture um and and i want i want the the images and the people that that you think of when you think of cannabis to change a little bit and get a little bit more diverse right now and yeah. uh more mainstream right now and um uh and and i want us to also preserve our own unique um cult culture, whether that be hippie culture or Cheech and Chong or Snoop yeah. and gangster rap culture and uh, rainbow culture and reggae uh, uh, Rasta culture and all the different tribes within our tribe. Uh, yeah. I want to make, you know, I think it's important that we keep those traditions going too. And, 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 and between all of that, we'll create a really beautiful tapestry that will grow and, and live uh, and change every day. Uh, and, 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 and we'll see, you know, our, our value system that we've taken from the plant, other people will take from the plant and will contribute to the culture and, 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 and the Renaissance will be on. Uh, and future generations will be able to look back at what we're doing right now and feel proud uh, that that their ancestors did took the risk and made the sacrifices uh, so that uh, they could enjoy uh, a cannabis economy. Yeah, yeah, no, very well put. I keep thinking about my daughter when she gets older and I tell her the stories, you know, of how far things have come, even just in my lifetime, what I've experienced and the prohibition that I've experienced, traumas, you know, the changes, the evolution and, you know, can only imagine where it's going to be, you know, when she's, you know, in her late teens and starting to, you know, wrap her mind around all of that. Um, you know, despite how frustrating sometimes it gets when things don't evolve the way we'd like to see them, don't, you know, sometimes it feels like we take two steps forward, two steps back sometimes. Um, the ball is still always moving and still always evolving and it's moving into a better position than. Yeah, I think, you know, what we've talked about today is really about being more mindful of that evolution and our contributions in how we drive that evolution. So it's, you know, it's nice to see, uh, you know, people like yourself and your brother that are using, you know, part of Harborside's whole deal was setting a new standard and trying to present uh, a new image, a new story, a new way of thinking about cannabis users and cannabis commerce and all these sort of things and um, everything that we've talked about about stigma you know that's what it's all about is recognizing that all of us players in this dance that we're in that we have this opportunity to set a new standard set new examples 
And, you know, as far as convincing people that don't necessarily agree, that's some of the best things you can do. Give them a new framework for thinking about this topic altogether and new images that come to their mind when they think about a cannabis user or a cannabis company. Um, and, you know, that's that's how that change will happen. So I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate, you know, the the activism and, you know, the sort of grand vision that you and your brother are trying to really, um, you know, realize and, and make happen here. It's It's inspiring. Like I said, it's inspired me since I was, you know, a teenager. And now here I am in my 30s and, you know, having the chance to, you know, connect with you and everything. It's it's honestly a little little mind blowing how this whole, you know, your involvement in the cannabis space, you never know where it's going to take you and and what's going to happen next. But um, I appreciate all of your work. I really appreciate you being willing to take the time today to chat with me for as long as we have. Um, it's been great. There's a million other things we could chat about. Um, I didn't even get into talking about Steep Hill and how Harborside was the first, you know, dispensary to get into testing. You'd think as a scientist, that's something that I would have gotten into, but there's so much other, I think, really important things to talk about that we'll find another time, some time to get into into that. But um just want to throw that nugget out there that Harborside was the first dispensary to do lab testing too. So as far as setting standards, you guys have done a lot of great work. So so thank you for that. Well, it was great to be with you today, Jason. And We'll see you next time. Yeah, sounds great. I look forward to our paths crossing again. So take it easy. And anyone listening, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can find us at CACpodcast.com, and you can find us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and you can find me on LinkedIn if you want to connect with me personally. So thanks so much, and take it easy. Stay curious. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.